The following is brought to you by Braided Media. Hello, and welcome to the Made to Lead podcast, a show where we tell the personal and professional stories of amazing people of African descent who are leading in their own way. I'm your host, Aziz Garuba, and on each episode, I interview a dynamic individual and discuss their achievements, challenges, dreams, and aspirations, and the lessons they've learned along the way. These candid conversations are meant to showcase their superb talents and leadership philosophies with the hope that inspires you, because you were also made to lead. If you're listening for the first time, I encourage you to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Made to Lead Show. Also visit our website, madetolead.co, for more information about each episode. All right, welcome to another episode of the show. Uh, my name is Aziz Garuba, the host of Made to Lead, and today I'm happy to have with us Mansa Chinto. She is an entertainment lawyer, currently working in-house at Entertainment One. For those of you that watch movies, you've probably seen Entertainment One's logo at the beginning uh, of those movies. And Entertainment One is a is a global independent studio that specializes in the development acquisition, production, financing, distribution, and sales of entertainment content. So Mansa advises on E1's business affairs uh, with a focus on film and interactive digital media sales and licensing agreements. Uh, but prior to that, she operated as a sole practitioner advising her own clients, including performing artists, managers, uh, music publishers, and independent record labels on all aspects of their business. Uh, Mansa received her Bachelor of Laws degree from uh, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. And following that, she articled at a boutique entertainment firm located in Toronto, uh, specializing in film financing and production. Uh, so currently in her practice, Mansa strives to make comprehension of both the law, uh, uh, of the law accessible and inviting, and she works to educate artists about their rights, speaking on panels about copyright law and, and, and artist rights uh, at the Gallery of Ontario and the NIA Center for the Arts, among others. So welcome to the show, Mansa. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Awesome. So uh, as, as we like to start our show, you know, we want to start with getting to know you. So, so let's talk about your, your background, your heritage, um, growing up, uh, and what that was all like uh, for you. Okay. Well, so I'm Ghanaian uh, by heritage. My parents immigrated to Canada in the 70s, so I'm first generation um, I grew up with my sisters and I were all born here in Canada. So I was born in Hamilton, where I grew up in a predominantly very white community. Uh, and so my parents had, uh, when they came in the 70s, they had their kind of own experiences with, you know, having to recertify and to bring themselves kind of up to the speed of the Canadian, I guess, standard. And so through that, they had uh, I think a lot of setbacks, but by the time I came around, because I'm the third child, uh, we were in a position of privilege. <laughs> nice, very good. <laughs> so, so I grew up in a very, uh, a very privileged, very white community in Hamilton. Nice, very nice. And, and how many siblings do you do you have? So I have two older sisters. I'm the youngest okay. of three. Oh, nice! Isn't mm -hmm. that isn't that a great position to be in the last born? That 
Everything has been done before you showed up. So that's good. Um, so, yeah. So, so talk about, uh, you know, talk to us about uh, about that family life. Like, what, what was it like growing up in an immigrant household? Uh, you know, you, you mentioned by the time you showed up, there was a little bit more privilege. Um, but, you know, what was that like before you came and even after you came um, uh, in terms of your family experience? Well, so I think the the experience of being an immigrant or a child of immigrants is such that um, their experiences of hardship are so fresh that they're always trying to protect us from having to go through those same kind of drawbacks. You know, my dad, uh, he actually was a very successful um, television reporter on City TV here in Toronto, but it took him quite a few years to kind of get there. And when he came here from Ghana, he was already a producer. You know, he had had a lot of experience producing on the uh, national broadcaster in Ghana. And when he moved here, he tells a story of, you know, he just took his um, his resume down to CBC and was like, oh, I'm a producer. <laughs> this is a television station. I should be able to get a job. And, you know, coming from a community where everyone uh, looks like you, you, you don't ever consider that you know, your experience wouldn't be enough mm. or that he would need to have specific Canadian experience. And so it took him, I think, quite a few tries of going down there and them, you know, mysteriously losing his resume <laughs> that someone finally pulled him aside and said, you know, actually, you need to have Canadian experience. You need to have this. And that's when he kind of became aware of, um, I guess, racism for the first time. Mm. Um and then my mother, similarly, she was an anesthesiologist. And so she came from Ghana already a practicing um, and certified doctor and had to recertify as well. And then um, had her own experiences of trying to find, you know, uh, residency positions. I think she had one initially at a hospital that then was shut down due to lack of funding and was unable to find a position for, for several years. Um, and so it took her... I think probably seven years to get recertified and to finally be able to practice medicine here in Canada. Uh, and those experiences, I think, definitely impacted them, but they don't tend to talk about them very much. Hmm. More so what they do is encourage us to just kind of keep going how they did. But it's hard being a first-generation child because you're growing up here in Canada where, you know, you feel like I'm just like all of my friends in North America, but then at home, the parent, the messaging is like, you are not like them. Mm. You have to work harder. You know, you, um, you may think that, uh, you have those same privileges, but you also have to remember that you are a black child and that, you know, the world is going to look at you differently. Mm. And so that I think informed how we, how we all worked, um, and how we all, approached i guess our attitudes towards work right right very interesting and 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 so you know getting into the school system i guess um uh with that home background um did you have uh those i guess an an issue of that of identity like do i you know where do i belong where do i fit in uh you know i've got this african heritage but i've also i'm also in this um predominantly white area in in hamilton um was there any struggle there in, you know, throughout, you know, elementary school or high school? Yeah, it was, it was very difficult thinking back, you know, my, my parents, of course, being African are super strict, you yeah. know, that my mother hadn't, 
had no understanding of what there was to do outside past 10 p.m. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why you need to stay out past 10 p.m. There's nothing out there but trouble. (laughs) And meanwhile, you know, all of my, you know, friends were going to sleepovers and, you know, going to parties. And for me, trying to fit in, trying to make to feel like I was one of them was made that much more difficult because my parents didn't have that same understanding that I guess my North American counterparts had. Mm -hmm. Like my friends would always say to me, we'd be out on an evening like, oh, just call your mom and say you're going to sleep at my house. I'm like, oh, no, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) I can't just call her out of nowhere. Uh, She doesn't know your parents. She hasn't met them. We didn't plan this in advance. (laughs) I think that's a universal thing with all Africans. I mean, it was the same for us growing up, right? It's like, absolutely. Oh, you, just, you just didn't even try, you know? And at mm-hmm. a certain point, yeah. uh, you know, your friends start to feel like, oh, you know, is there a point even inviting you anyway? Because mm-hmm. we know this yeah. is what's going to happen. Very interesting. Yeah. So I was always just trying to balance that, trying to balance the wanting to fit in amongst my friends and be quote unquote normal and also, you know, be respectful to my parents and the expectations that they had for me. So it got to a point where when I I was in high school, you know, my curfew was significantly earlier than all of my friends, but I didn't want to miss out on the party. So I would go to a party for maybe 10, 15 minutes that I could in that window and then run home as fast as I could. Oh my. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, so, I mean, looking back at that now, right. I mean, when you, when you, you know, when you talk to your parents, right, or, or when you even reminisce, right, how, how does that type of conversation, you know, in terms of experiences, how does that play out in, in the household now that, you know, you're in your own elements, you're your own uh, person, if you will, um, you know, do, do you joke about it? Or is it is it still something that uh, no one talks about? No, no, we, I definitely joke about it a lot with my mom. I remember I was in university, and I actually had this kind of aha moment where I was living, you know, with roommates and none of them would clean, none of them would do any of these things. And that was something that I always used to get so frustrated at my mother about because every weekend growing up, I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't do anything until we cleaned the house top to bottom. And all of these different like values that she had instilled in us that I saw none of my other friends having to to do so it just felt like I was personally being targeted and then all of a sudden I was in university living with other people and I had this aha moment I was like oh that's what you were doing (laughs) you were you were preparing me for life nice Nice. (laughs) you were making me self-sufficient you know you didn't want me to be a burden on that let alone my roommates or anyone else my partner in the future and so once I kind of had that realization I was able to look back on on certain things with a different perspective and and see the positive in it mm. and see the value in it. Whereas when I was growing up, I was always just like, mm, my parents don't understand me. They don't know what it's like. They, they keep telling me I'm African, but like I was born here. They don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> That's phenomenal. And, and, you know, and, and, and talking about preparation for life, I mean, in, in, in university, I mean, you moved, you know, to the other side of the world completely uh for university in australia what was the what why did you make that decision um you know first of all to to go to australia and and second what prompted a focus on law as as a field of study 
So, I, well, I actually did my undergraduate. So I, my law degree I did as a post-grad. So I had done an undergrad in Ottawa. So that was the first time that I'd moved away, right. uh, which is equally far from Hamilton, four hours away. And I would say that the reasoning for both moves was definitely my family. You know, we were so close to to each other and I wanted to have a sense of independence and a sense of developing as an individual without kind of the specter of my family kind of over me. Mm-hmm. And I've always been, you know, the most independent of my siblings. And so moving far away, Australia was somewhere I had always wanted to go since I was very young. I remember when I was in Ghana, I used to go to Ghana to visit my grandparents and my grandfather had traveled quite a bit through his work as an engineer and he had a booklet on Australia. And I remember going through it all the time and I just was really drawn to the country and I wanted to move there. So when I had the opportunity to apply for law school and I was considering North America, but I said, okay, well, this is an opportunity for me to finally move somewhere, but also, um, get a degree at the same time Mm -hmm. so it was kind of killing two birds with one stone which is also I guess (laughs) how I ended up in entertainment law Nice, (laughs) because entertainment law was something that I decided upon because I was always involved in music I was going to concerts like almost every weekend when I was growing up Mm -hmm. Um, I used to do fashion styling I DJ still to this day like I've always been involved in creative pursuits and going through high school, I knew within my family that there was a kind of more of a push towards having a quote unquote like professional career. Yeah. So I had seen my sisters who had both been involved in acting wanting to pursue that before me. And then my parents at the time thinking, mm, you know what, maybe that's not the most secure thing. Let's try and focus on something a bit more stable. So when I was in high school, I took a law class and suddenly it clicked to me. I was like, this is a way for me to have that kind of acceptable career, but also to marry it with my desire to be involved in the creative industries. And it just suddenly occurred to me that here I can have uh, have my cake and eat it too. Nice, nice. No, that, that's very good. Let's rewind for a little bit. You, you, you said you, were, you used to DJ and you still DJ. <laughs> yeah. um, what's the genesis of that? When did you discover this as, as an art form, as something that you were interested in? And, and how did you, how, first of all, how have you maintained it all this time? Well, so, I mean, when I say DJ, I'm like dive bar DJ. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but that's actually how it started. You know, I've always been involved in music. I've always been the one within my friend group to make the playlists whenever we're having the party. Like, I'm... I'm in charge of that. And so it was actually probably maybe 10, 15 years ago, I was at a bar and a friend of mine had been hired to DJ and he got so drunk. He kept playing the same song over and over. And I just literally pushed him out of the way (laughs) and I took over. (laughs) And the manager at the bar was like, oh, that was really good. Do you want to come back next week? I was like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And that's how it started. And so I just kind of continued to do that. Before I went away to school, to law school, I would have a regular night at a kind of local bar downtown. And then when I came back from law school, 
I just kind of picked up where I left off. And, you know, I'm friends with people in the bar and entertainment industry, and they know me. They know that I love music, and they know that I love to do it. So whenever they have an open slot on their DJ schedule, <laughs> they call me up. Nice, nice. That, that's very cool. Very, very cool indeed. <laughs> and, and, you know, it, it's, it's, it's awesome to have these creative, you know, outlets, these creative, uh, I, I won't call them side things, right? Because I think they're, they're more than just a side thing. Like, it's, it's a full-on passion. Uh, I think one one popular executive that we know who's also a DJ is the head of Goldman Sachs, right? So he, he has a full on profession, second profession as, as a DJ. And, and that, that, that's really cool to see. Um, so, so let, let's go back to, to university again, right? You know, where you're, you're studying law and, and you've decided that, okay, you want to specialize in uh, the entertainment industry. Um, did you have to go, you know, did, you know, how did you one land on that decision firmly uh, and two, did you, you know, did you end up working on, on any internships to sort of give you more exposure to that, that space? How did, how did you get that first exposure into the, into the entertainment industry? Well, I think my, my first exposure to the entertainment industry is much earlier, and that would have been with my father and the experience of him being um, a news reporter for, um, for local television. So because of that experience it was very normal for us to be at events that my dad was, you know, emceeing or speaking on with, you know, other musicians, other celebrities. And so that was just kind of the world in which we grew up. So having always been drawn to those pursuits, when I sought out the career of law, I kind of inherently knew that that's where I was going. Um, And so I don't think that there was necessarily anything that happened through school that made me get there. It was just, it, that was always the goal. Right. right. Um, and then while I was in um, law school, I, I did volunteer. I volunteered at a record, sorry, not a record, a radio station. I volunteered at a radio station where I would do the kind of copyright compliance work that they had. So uh, I don't know if you know this, but every time a radio station plays a song, they have to keep, a log so that way they can account the royalties back to the different uh, collection societies. And so that was kind of my into seeing how that works practically. Um, and then I also had another internship with um, a federal court judge who was doing an inquiry into media and media regulation. So that was another another internship that I had that was kind of helping me towards my goal of working in entertainment. Um, but the unfortunate thing, actually, within my program in Australia is there weren't really many kind of entertainment law courses. Mm. There was just traditional copyright and media law. So the experiences that I was able to have through that course were more so geared towards media, uh, traditional media law and right. copyright rather than anything um, typically, I guess, entertainment. Right. Okay. And and, and so, you know, you, fin- you were able to finish that that. The law degree you you graduate from from Australia, um, and uh, I guess you found your way back to Toronto immediately after that uh, to, to to effectively start your career. You know, you write the bar exam uh, and start your articling. Um, you know, so so what was that trajectory like? You know, getting into the industry, and and then and then we'll talk about what made you start your own practice after. So 
when I came back from Australia, I had to do a conversion process. So it wasn't just straight into the articling system and writing the bar. Mm. Uh, I had to apply to the National Council of Accreditation, and they kind of do an assessment of your degree and where you've studied and determine how many exams you need to do to be equivalent to the Canadian system. So I was lucky. Uh, I had only four exams, which are the kind of the core four um, courses. And the exams are sat kind of uh, within six-month intervals, and not every exam is sat in every period. So I wanted to get back into the system as quickly as possible. So instead of separating out my exams, which is what most people do, I sat all four of them at one time. So I came back immediately, applied for those, and then I had the plan within, I think it was six months, that I was going to be sitting those exams. But at the same time, I, everyone that I know has always known that I wanted to work in entertainment. So when I came back, people were just kind of keeping their eyes out for opportunities for me. And a friend of a friend <laughs> intercepted an email from her boss, from an entertainment lawyer who was looking for a legal assistant. And so she forwarded that to me. And I applied to that position. It was probably, I think I'd only been home from law school for about a month. And so I said, okay, well, I know I have this whole long exam process ahead of me, so I'm not able to enter the articling system yet. So let me take this position as a legal assistant um, at this entertainment firm uh, while I'm getting up to speed. And so that is how I got into that entertainment firm. Nice. <laughs> yeah. And then... While I was so I was working uh, full time at that firm as an assistant, but then because they knew that I had a law degree, they were giving me quite a lot of um, quite a lot of work that would be typically given to more senior kind of articling student or um, maybe lawyers who are at a higher year of call. So I was lucky because it was such a small practice that I was able to get some really great tangible experience that I might not have otherwise been able to have access to had I gone the conventional route of, you know, applying and going into maybe one of the Bay Street law firms and articling that way. So I was lucky that uh, my friend intercepted that email. <laughs> That's very good. Very, very serendipitous indeed. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so that practice was actually the same practice where I ended up articling. So once I finished my National Council exams, I was then able to uh, apply for the bar exams and then apply for articling, and they had brought me on as an articling student because by that time I'd kind of made myself invaluable to them. Excellent, excellent. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so, so throughout that experience, uh, you know, you're getting all of the, 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 the knowledge, you know, working in the industry. What made you decide that it was time for you to say, okay, I'm going to strike out on my own for a bit um, and do my own thing? It was... <laughs> Unfortunately, so working in that practice was kind of a blessing and a curse. It was a blessing in that I was able to have access to so much training that I otherwise would not have in a larger firm. But it was also a curse in that I was juggling a lot of roles. So they brought me on as an articling student, but I was still doing the same duties that I did when I was a legal assistant. I was still working as accounts payable. I was still the office manager. I was doing, I was doing everything. And I was lucky that I was able to get that experience. I know that for sure. But I felt that 
I felt that I wasn't being treated with the respect that I deserved for, with reference to the amount of kind of balls that I was keeping up in the air. Um, so that was one thing. And then right around the time that I got called to the bar, my mentor within that practice also decided to leave. So without my mentor in that practice anymore, and then me feeling like I was kind of doing a lot and also not being treated uh, respectfully, I felt like, okay, you know what? You've been called to the bar now. Maybe this is a time for you to strike out on your own and do something else. Great. And, and was that scary? Was, was the thought of doing this on your own scary? Yeah, it was terrifying. I had a three-year-long panic attack. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, it was actually my mentor. I, when I decided to leave the firm, I was just planning to quit. I was planning to quit and find another opportunity where I could thrive or I could grow. I knew that this was not the environment for me, and I wanted to find somewhere else. But I also know that entertainment law the opportunities are really few and far between. And a lot of the practices are quite small, so they don't tend to hire very often. So I had this um, conversation with my mentor, and it was her that said to me, she's like, okay, well, I've been working with you now for over two years. Why don't you try doing it on your own? And it had never occurred to me until she raised that. And I think it was the benefit of having someone who was you know, further along in their career looking at me and the work that I'd put out saying you can do this that gave me the confidence to do it that's fantastic and 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 you know and, and it's it's great to have those kind of cheerleaders supporters and and you know let, let's touch on even just having a mentor um how much of the the experience and success that you achieved even when you're working for the firm would you say was due to having that mentor being there to help guide you um, uh, in terms of the areas that you needed to focus on? I mean, a quite, I, I would just have to say a lot of it, you know. There was a lot that I was able to to do on my own, and I think that I was uniquely skilled to kind of take on challenges and to kind of push through in a way that other people in that position may not have been. But it was that mentor who really... Um, you know, gave me the full context that I needed to feel confident in the work that I was doing, right? Um, I was because within entertainment law, it's a lot of drafting and negotiating contracts. And sometimes depending on the area, it can be very, you know, plug and play by rote, and you don't really have to think too much about it depending on what is happening. And, but for me, to feel confident in the work that I was doing, I really need to know okay, what, why are we moving these things around? You know, what does this affect if we change this and that? And I wasn't getting that uh, mentorship from the principal in that practice, but I was getting it from my mentor. And that definitely is something that has helped me to this day, that the guidance that I received. Brilliant. And so, so let, let's talk about your experience on your, on your own, right? Uh, you, you said it was like almost like a three-year panic attack for the time that you ran it. Um, but, but what are some what what were some defining moments during uh, that time period of of being uh, a a, um, a solo practitioner uh, running your own shop? I mean, some defining moments. I would say probably the first deal that I did for an artist from beginning to end 
by myself where I felt like they were super appreciative. I felt like I got them a great deal. I felt like I really negotiated um, in their interest. So that was the first one because it just validated to me. It's like, okay, you can do this. You might be new, you might be young, but you actually are doing something real. Um, And then as I progressed, when people would start to call me to speak on panels and to explain my expertise, I was invited to speak on a panel about musicians and musicians' rights for the Ontario Bar Association. And it was, I think, that external validation that really helped me to to see, okay, yeah, you're doing this. <laughs> you're doing this. You're sitting in a room full of other lawyers who are practicing in this area, and they're looking to you to explain this area of law. So you, you know, you know what you're doing. So that was really helpful. And, and in the, in the three years that, that you ran this practice, or just over three years that you, that you ran your own shop, I'm, I'm sure there were many moments where it was like, what am I doing? You know, um, like I should just quit this. Like, you know, what happened during those time frames? Like, can you tell us a story of, you know, one of those incidents where it was like, I, you know, I think I'm in over my head. It's time to just close, close this down. Well, I mean, that was every day. <laughs> every, every day, honestly, every day I woke up like, what am I doing? Why do I not have a quote unquote job yet? But I never stopped, right? I kept going. And I don't think that I've ever, I ever felt in over my head because I've been someone who always knows how to ask for help when I need it. Mm. So I spent a lot of time in the library I found all the resources I could to find to to build up my skills to give me the information that I needed to feel confident. I made a lot of connections to um, other lawyers who had been practicing in the area, and I just kind of had to swallow my pride and call them up when I needed advice. So I, but I think that fear of what am I doing? <laughs> How, can I really do this? Actually, is what drove me to keep going every day. Nice, nice, mm-hmm. and 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 I guess the when it came time to actually close the shop, uh, what happened? Was it a you know was it because Entertainment One came calling, or you just realized, hey, you know, I, I, I there are some other opportunities I'd like to explore, and, and I think it's now time to to to, to close this down. Mm-hmm. Well, it was it was kind of both. So as I mentioned initially when I started it, it was just meant to be an interim thing that I was doing while I was looking for other jobs. And so I was still actively applying for jobs the whole time while I was, thankfully, I mean, I had clients and I still had work and my practice was building and building and it really grew to be a self-sufficient practice, which is something I'm super proud of. But the whole time I was fighting against it, the whole time I was telling myself, I don't want to do this. Why do I have a practice? It's great that it's successful and I can pay my bills, but please, somebody just give me a job. And so when Entertainment One, the opportunity came up, I was like, thank God, I'm tired. Oh, my. And, and, and okay, and, and, and Entertainment One, let's talk about that experience, you know, how did that opportunity come about? Was it just your typical, hey, I'm applying and I got this or, you know, someone, a friend of a friend or a, a mentor, you know, intercepted an email, right? Similar to the first <laughs> opportunity. Like how, how did, how did this, this opportunity come about? 
So this one was just kind of through my personal network. So yeah, similarly to the other one, um, a friend of mine was working at E1 in a different capacity, not in the legal team, but an opportunity came up within the legal team and she messaged me on Facebook and cause she, you know, we'd been having conversations over the three years of me having my own practice. And she knew that I was looking to have something more stable. Um, and I was, and so when that opportunity came up, she sent me a message on Facebook and was like, are you interested in this job? I forwarded her my resume on Facebook. <laughs> and then within a couple of days, I got a call and had an interview. And how has the experience been so far? It's been, it's been good. I think it's fantastic now. I'm feeling very confident. I love, I actually really enjoy working at E1. I love the team that I have. I love, like, not just within Toronto, but internationally. It's a really collaborative team of lawyers. It's a place where I feel like I can be myself and be authentic. I think the most difficult thing was actually in the very beginning, and that was really me getting in my own way mm. and me having to deal a little bit with imposter syndrome because so I had gone so long working on my own and then I've come into this big organization and because I was so used to doing everything on my own, I had kind of lost that ability of asking people for help. And I, you know, because I had been looking for an opportunity like this for so long, I was so nervous about doing the wrong thing or them thinking I wasn't good enough that I just was a little bit stunned into silence. <laughs> and so it took me a while to get comfortable. But now that I am, I'm, it's a great place. Well, at least for a lawyer to work. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. And, and, and what are some interesting things that you that you've ended up working on? Of course, you, you can't disclose details, but, um, you know, what are some fun projects or fun deals that you've, that you've been involved in over, over the course of your experience at E1? So my, my primary, um, my primary portfolio is more so with film sales and licensing. So I'm selling content to, you know, platforms like Netflix and iTunes. And so those are the deals that I work on kind of day to day. And those are interesting because I get to learn about kind of new and upcoming like platforms and new technology. And it's fun to have to download, you know, a new platform and figure out all the functionality because I have to understand how I need to, you know, protect our content in the, uh, in the contract. So it's nice to be able to expense, you know, another streaming platform <laughs> <laughs> subscription. <laughs> but I would say one of the things I'm really excited about working on is we have a virtual reality um, company within E1, which is called Secret Location. And they are always working on something crazy. <laughs> they have all this different VR technology they're developing uh, VR games, VR experiences. And so I've been helping them with a lot of those licensing deals. And then by working so close to them, I get to see kind of all their crazy uh, energy and how they're making things come to life. So that's really fun. Oh, that, that sounds super cool. Very cool. I mean, mm -hmm. just being able to play with new stuff is, is always, always great, especially with technology changing very, very rapidly. Um, so, so I guess let, let's move on to, you know, some, some thoughts and reflections uh, around uh, your life and, and based on all the experiences that you've gathered. Um, so, so you're in a leadership role, you know, um, heading uh, 
quite a bit of work uh, and, uh, within the business and legal affairs group at, at E1. Um, what would you say are some, are some leadership philosophies that you practice or you've practiced um, in this role and in previous roles? And, and how, how has that sort of helped you navigate uh, this space that you're in right now? So leadership philosophies, I would say um, leading with an abundance mindset. <laughs> you know, it was someone was telling me, sometimes people treat success as if there's like a finite amount of success, you know, and certain leaders, they hoard that success. Um, and my experience to date, um, not in E1, but in other um, firms, felt like that kind of hoarding mindset was creating a very adversarial and very competitive environment, which was, I felt like kind of detrimental. And so I would like to lead with an abundance mindset. Like there is enough success for everyone. There is enough sun for everyone. And when we share knowledge and we uplift the entire team, it ultimately helps the business. You know, I, I'm constantly talking about, you know, why don't people invest more in employees and employee mentorship? And, you know, because if your employees are happy, they're going to be more willing to work later, which means you're going to make more money, you know? And to me, it seems like such common sense, but I find that not everyone has kind of caught on to that uh, attitude yet. Yeah, very, very good points for sure. And, and I, I like what you say about, you know, understanding that there's enough success to go around right mm -hmm. and it, it shouldn't only you, you don't have to hoard it um you don't have to hold all of the information so close to you because if someone really wanted to do something that you had in mind they do it right mm -hmm. but you know if if you give them the info all that's necessary all, what they don't have is your mindset and your approach to, to execution mm -hmm. and that's the thing is you know just because someone is first to the post doesn't mean that your idea and your expression of your, your idea isn't also going to be successful. You know, that's why we have competition in the marketplace, right? You know, there are, <laughs> Burger King and McDonald's exist, yep. you know? <laughs> you know, and I think that capitalism often makes us feel like there can only be one, but there is enough for everyone. Right, right. Yeah. Very, very good. Um, so and let, let's talk about the, even the industry that you're in right now. I mean, there's... Um, it's it's we consume entertainment through different forms um but let's talk about the side of entertainment where there we aren't seeing much representation let's say with with black producers with black creatives um you know we're seeing a trend now towards uh getting more representation in all aspects of uh, the entertainment value chain. Uh, Netflix just launched, uh, I think, a $100 million fund uh, to, to do just that. Uh, what are your thoughts around representation, particularly coming from your experience as a black female individual in this space? Well, I mean, yeah, the entertainment industry is still a very white business. I mean, specifically on the business side of things. Um, and that like anything, you know, will affect your perspective and the decisions that you make in terms of buying and, you know, what you consider valuable. But I do think that that is actively changing. And I know that companies are becoming aware of that. Um, and they're starting to realize that, you know, representation is good for business, right? Um, 
and I'm happy to see that changing. I'm seeing that changing within my own company in terms of the decisions that they're making in terms of, you know, uh, programs that they're rolling out. Um, but yeah, I think that we're in a great time of history where people are really turning their minds to this issue. And there are so many programs that are being developed to support black creatives um, and business people to be more fully represented within the entertainment business. Very good. And, and, you know, I guess as we, as we wrap up, you know, maybe the last question I'll ask you is, you know, just about the ways you're, you're giving back. You know, because I think a lot of us sometimes, we, you know, once we've gotten to a certain point, like, you know, our next phase is to say, hey, how can we help the next generation come forward or come up? Uh, or how can I help someone not make the same mistakes that I did? Um, what ways are you giving back uh, right now? Well, I, I give back through mentorship. Whenever anyone emails me looking for a conversation about, you know, my path or how to get into entertainment law, that's something that I always even if I'm really busy, I will always entertain because I know from my own experience of when I was trying to break in and when I was working for myself, not all of those doors opened for me and I would email people, try to get in touch with people and it felt like I was out alone, kind of in the wilderness. Um, and so that's a way that I give back is just making time for for young lawyers and anyone else who's really interested in getting to know the business. I will always have time to have a coffee, have a conversation, um, and help them and give them whatever advice I have. And then also I'm volunteering as well. I volunteer with an arts board where they run a not-for-profit legal service that provides free summary legal advice for artists and creators. So that's something that's always been really important to me is artist rights and advocacy um, because that's part of the reason why I got into entertainment law, seeing so many of my creator friends, you know, getting taken advantage of and not understanding their rights. And, you know, there's so many common stories of artists signing contracts. And they don't realize what they say. So I think that resources like um, Alas, which is what it's called, um, are fantastic because I think helping people to help themselves is what we should all strive for. Brilliant. Brilliant. And and, and I guess we'll, we'll, we'll share a link to, to, to that group uh, in the in the notes as well so people can check it out um awesome mansa thanks for for your time today but just before we go um let's go through a rapid fire session gonna ask you five questions uh and you're just gonna give me your quickest answers uh, uh as quick as possible um and we'll go from there um all right so uh first question what is a book that you're currently reading I'm currently reading Happy Hour by uh, Marlo Granados, I think. Okay. <laughs> can't awesome. find it, but somewhere <laughs> here. It's somewhere here, but it's called Happy Hour. Awesome. It's a local Toronto author. And what, who would you say is your favorite Disney character? Disney character. Ooh. You know what? I'm going to say Ariel. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. And what is your go-to uh, productivity hack or, or tool? Uh, lists. Lists? Awesome. <laughs> awesome. And where would you say is your favorite place to escape to? Reality TV land. <laughs> <laughs> and w which one are you watching right now? Love Island. Nice. Nice. And last question, if money or resources were not an issue, what would you do? We're not an 
issue. Oh, I would be a kept woman on a yacht in <laughs> south of France. <laughs> that is awesome. That is fabulous. <laughs> well, Mansa, thank you very much for your very, very uh, candid conversation, for uh, sharing with us your experiences. Really appreciate you taking the time. And, uh, of course, as we say on the show, we will keep watching you because you are made to lead. And we wish you all the best and success in the rest of your endeavors. Thanks. Thanks for chatting with me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Made to Lead. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, and please share with others. Also take a moment to leave a review as well. This helps us improve and also get discovered by others. You can also support by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Made to Lead Show, and by visiting our website, madetolead.co. If you would like to be featured or know an amazing person of African descent whose story would be inspirational to others, I'd love to hear from you. Visit our website, madetolead.co slash getfeatured, and send us a note. As you continue on your own leadership journey, remember that if you don't spread your wings, you'll never know how high or how far you can fly. So stretch your feathers, because you were made to lead. <laughs>